Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 34. Welcome to That's Wrap, episode number 34. I am Eric Marshall. And I'm Nick Schlegel. And I'm Chris Gullen. And we are three passionate scholars who like to debate film and media and stuff. Yes. I, I mixed both of our taglines. I think the first one in there, newer <laughs> one, so, which is awesome. That's uh, good. Yeah. So uh, how are you guys doing? Um, I am well. Uh, Chris, how are you? I'm doing great. Good, uh, good. Really, really well. well I'm glad oh, to hear it. We're all doing good. How are you, Eric? Oh, I'm just fine, thanks. Doing just fine over here in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, so today we are talking about um, a remake. It's a beginning or launching a new series yes. of uh, podcasts about remakes. And that's the only thing we're doing today. It's going to be our uh, segment one once we're done with pickups. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, 1947 Jacques Turner's Out of the Past and uh, the 1984 Against All Odds. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, but in the meantime, this is where we do pickups, little odds and ends and catching up and stuff. Um, I think right I want to, I want to start with – well, I want to start with the Patreon thing real quick, I guess. Um, we have, uh, as as we announced, I think it was last episode or two episodes ago, that we're on Patreon, and uh, which means that if you want to, you can support us um, financially to help us uh, cover hosting costs and, and, and just to show your love, I guess. And uh, we have two patrons uh, between uh, last episode and this episode. We have two new patrons josh yes grady. we do yep so we have josh grady and av brown and thanks. andrew okay and uh thank you both for supporting us uh, our first two patrons so uh i hope it's uh money well spent <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah that's uh that's um andrew's facebook tag which is av but yeah that's his it's his first name is andrew great yeah, so that's fantastic. I'm really happy about that. I was excited to see those come through. And, uh, you know, if you want to support us as well, you can go to patreon.com slash that's a wrap. Or we'll also put a link at our website, that's a wrap show.com. So you can uh, you can do that. It's a really cool system uh, where, like I said, where uh, people can support their, their favorite podcasts or artists or whatever. Um, while I'm talking about that, I guess I'm going to plug my own podcast real quick because um, <laughs> sure. by the time this airs, um, I will have an episode up of the Wet Podcast uh, in which I interview somebody from Patreon who talks about all the ins and outs of what makes a good Patreon campaign. If you're an artist, uh, what it means to support an artist if you're a patron. Um, and you can find that at ericmarshall.net slash wet. It'll be episode number... Uh, 28 i think <laughs> anyway just go you can find it but yeah if you're interested in patreon there's uh there'll be a good interview up there for you to to listen to i wanted to give a little love to andrew specifically just to say thanks to him uh myself just because uh i've known andrew quite some time now several several years he's a former student a young and talented screenwriter uh and director 
and uh, has been a longtime fan of the show. He's been listening since since pretty much the inception of it all. And uh, I mean, ultimately, I think we'd be loving to get uh, patrons who you know don't know us. <laughs> that would be even better, you know, if we start. Um, uh, getting some feedback and touching the lives of people who we don't know, and so ultimately that's that's the goal here. Is I'm hoping that uh, the next patron that comes in is just you know somebody from another state whom we do not know. <laughs> yeah, cause I know I know Josh as well. So um, Josh is a really good guy, and uh, again, thanks Josh for that. Uh, I know him from the University of Michigan. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess like that's everyone's dream is to have strangers like you, you know. But uh, you know, not that uh, we're not happy to have people who like. Yeah, us we're very grateful. Us, but but yeah, that's that's always the dream. Like strangers like our stuff, and we know I know there are a lot of people we don't know that listen to this podcast. Actually, we just don't. Well, know they have to be right. We we just had our ten thousandth download. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's crazy. A little milestone for us, and we're uh, this is we're about two years in. I know that because I had to uh, renew the registration yesterday. <laughs> Our domain <laughs> okay, registration oh, is uh, coincidentally on tax day, the fifteenth of April. So I had to renew it. So I know we were about two years old. So two years since we sat in that Whole Foods bar, drinking <laughs> beer, planning this Talk thing. About out. Chris Nolan talking about Chris. Great Nolan. times. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay, so that uh, that's some business I wanted to take care of. Um, what about you guys? What's new? I, I have some other personal stuff, but I'll let you guys. Oh, I'll go first and get it out of the way. I have some. Uh, I have an addendum to make to our uh, top ten films of the nineteen nineties. Um, you know, I like woke up the next day in like this terrible sweat and had the shakes. It was almost like nauseous, you know, because I'm like, oh, my God. I, there was like four or five films that I didn't mention. I didn't, you know, and I'm like, well, how many honorable mentions can you possibly have? So I but so I wouldn't have added them per se. I just would have like maybe put them in there in the honorable mentions or in the top ten. And that's what pissed me off so much. It was kind of like what Eric was saying about about like, you know, I know I'm going to forget something. <laughs> But there was um, – I just wanted to mention very quickly, there's like five or six, but I don't even remember them. It was a sort of a fever pitch dream I had. But I do remember Chaplin, Scent of a Woman, and Kicking and Screaming. Mm. I remember those three films and going, oh, oh, and The People versus Larry Flint. I remember those those four films and I'm going, no, how could I forget these films? You mentioned, you mentioned The People versus Larry Flint. I think. Oh, did I? Okay. So it's yeah. Chaplin, Scent of a Woman, and Kicking and Screaming. So, And I'm surprised, Nick, that you didn't mention more about – uh, Chaplin, because you introduced me to that film, Richard Attenborough's film. Yeah, I know, Chris. It's uh, it just you know when you're doing when we're doing these lists, we get some you get some tunnel vision, even though you're trying to be as as sort of you know cast a wide berth. Exactly, and and so I you know, and there's more by the way. There's like several more that popped into my head, but I only quickly jotted down those three: a scent of a woman, Chaplin, and kicking and screaming. Beyond that. Um, I'm further along in the things that I've been talking about the past several months. I, uh, my publisher sent me to galleys for my book, so I mean I'm going, I'm going through those. I have to generate an index from that. And my friend Ted uh, really helped me out with starting that index, and so I've just been working on that a little bit every day. Index is kind of pain in the ass, you know. They take a long, they take a long time. <laughs> And there's a uh, there's a certain amount of formatting that goes into them, and then there's the question of comprehensiveness. So they, you know, my index right now is about twenty twenty six pages, something like that. So it's it's pretty wow, pretty big, That's you know, beefy. Um, yeah, I mean, it all gets reduced to a small font and like put into double, co- t- you know, two columns, so it doesn't take up that many pages in a book. 
But uh, yeah, it's it's it. You know, there's a lot of that going on. And but I'm very I'm thrilled with the galleys. Apart from some things where we have to, you know, just uh, change a few things around, move a few things around. The book looks fantastic, and it does have a street date now. I'll put up a link on the website. Uh, that's rapshow.com. It's being released in mid July, July 16th. But it could be even sooner than that because we're pretty much ahead of uh, production schedule right now. And for, the, for those of you who are new listeners, the book is called Sex, Sadism, Cinema, and Spain, the Spanish Horror Film. It's, it's my, uh, my comprehensive look at Spain uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, focusing on that particular genre, the horror film. And uh, apart from that, um, I think the only other thing is, is that I, and I'm writing this other thing that I need to finish up, uh, but I'm only about halfway maybe two-thirds of the way through and i gotta get that done in the end of the month and that's a piece on uh the piece i mentioned in a previous podcast about jess franco and his crimmies his german crimmies um and that's that's about all i got right now guys it's good stuff good stuff i love your title every time you say it i love it the title of your oh, book thank you <laughs> I, love, I like the cover the cover is great Thank you. That was a lot of consternation that went into that cover in terms of uh, you know which image you guys will recall. I was saying which one do you guys prefer, this one or this one or this one or this one? But yeah, uh, yeah. I'm ultimately I'm very happy. That's the image that I wanted. So did you do a cover reveal on the Facebook page for that's a wrap? No, I did not. Oh, you should do that. You should post uh, um, a cover, you know, image of the cover on that's wrap Facebook so people can see that. And I people- will do that. And, and I'll put a link to the Amazon uh, pre-order in the show notes. There you go. Thank you. Great. Perfect, Excellent. Perfect. Thanks, guys. There sure. we go. And that was a nice little hint for our listeners who are not already Facebook likers <laughs> to like us on Facebook. So you can find us on, our, on the website. What about you, Chris? What's up? Oh, been uh, wrapping up a busy semester here. Uh, been doing a lot of, lot of research uh, to – Articles about ready to submit for publication, so very excited about that. Went to uh, New Orleans about a week and a half ago for the Popular in American Culture National Conference, which was uh, just an absolute time. I I really do love that city, and uh, I, I I do. And it's 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 looking like I'm trying to get down there once a year. I think is what it's going to go towards. Um, we're we're heading down there again in October for the Swing Dance Festival. But I, I did want to give a shout out to two two good friends of mine who are fans of the podcast, one of which uh, I met in New Orleans. And when I told her about the podcast, she immediately downloaded every single episode. So uh, I want to – yeah, I want to give some love out to first Tim Craig at Warner University uh, in Florida uh, and uh, Rachel Fox at Columbia University in, in uh, Manhattan. Uh, so they uh, – Love you guys and uh, very, very happy to have you as listeners. So um, other than that, just getting ready for summer, uh, you know, projects and having fun with the kid and uh, things that's finally warming up here in Massachusetts. Uh, we we uh, have now broke broke uh, 70, actually. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I know. I know. It was a, it was it was a long time coming. And uh, we broke 70, and it's just, it's a wonderful time, too, because uh, at Westfield State, we have this big campus green right in the middle of campus, this huge lawn. You walk out there every day, and you see tons of kids playing frisbee and hanging out and just enjoying the warm weather after the long, long cold winter we've had in, here in New England. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's really a, just a, a good, good time. Things are, things are 
things are good. Outstanding. Excellent, excellent. And I have uh yeah, we have we're wrapping up our semester here, which is which is nice as well. Um looking forward to our summer. Um I do have one shout out myself. Uh I was uh recently on the Compendia podcast as a guest uh with uh Paul Christian Glenn and Neil T. Uh we it's a it's a nice podcast about independent film uh low budget micro budget film and every week they talk about a, a different low budget micro budget film and kind of evaluate it and, and just kind of chat about it and stuff it's really fun it's a great podcast and uh, i was on the episode where we talked about guy madden's uh, my winnipeg mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if you guys know my winnipeg or guy madden but um i'm a big guy yep. madden fan and we talked about that it was a great fun it was a great uh great podcast podcast great fun the two hosts are are a lot of fun so uh check that out uh the compendia podcast uh, I was on episode nine, and we'll uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's it's worth Excellent. it's worth checking out for show, for show, for show. Cool. And Did that's you guys about by it. chance see the Star Star Wars uh, extended trailer today? You know when when you and I started chatting uh, before Chris came on on Skype here, I I saw a link for it, and I was looking okay. at it, and I was like, I should press play, but I didn't, <laughs> so I'm waiting till later. So, <laughs> oh yeah, I just thought maybe in case you had, we could give it a minute or two. But no. I, I will say that I saw it, and you know, I was intrigued. Yeah, <laughs> I have not seen it yet. Um, so. So we'll have to save it for some other time. There we go. We'll have to talk about it some other time. Uh, Cool. Anything else for pickups, you guys? Mm, No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Well, let me uh, let me cue up the transition music here, and uh, we'll go into our one and only segment today about uh, out of the past and against all odds. So here we go. Ready? Welcome to Principal Photography. Of <laughs> that was great. That was wonderful. Thank I can't you. do it with a straight face. But uh, <laughs> welcome to Principal Photography, segment one, uh, our one and only segment of of the day uh, of episode number twenty eight. Um, <laughs> I had that all queued up for you guys. Thank you. So um, <laughs> after that wonderful transition. Uh, we are going to talk about out of the past and against all odds. And um, I just want to say that uh, Nick brought this topic to the, to the table. So, um, and we, you know, this is a new series that we're doing and this is like the inaugural kind of thing. So we'll probably talk a lot about remakes in general in this one (laughs) and then refer people back to it in future episodes. But um, uh, Nick, you want to tell us why uh, you thought about doing this as our first remake? Yeah, sure. Uh, in relationship to the series, you know, as as a primer, the idea was like our top tens, for example, or we spotlight a spotlight a particular director, um, or rather, I should say the top fives and then the top tens. It's just I've always been fascinated by remakes, um, and not not so much just by the sort of industrial um, and economic reasons for remakes, but the more more along the lines of the cultural. Uh, context behind uh, what sort of fuels the remakes and looking at sort of the same story told in quite usually the the same genre, but often decades apart. 
And I think that's also it's a really interesting conduit, a wedge to to look at society uh, and look at how things have changed, trans uh, how the ceilings in in fashion and and transgressions and race relations or uh, the economy or um, uh, politics or foreign policy or any of these things have just changed, you know, radically in twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years. So I'm always fascinated by remakes, and I thought. What would be a great series to, to, for us to do? And regarding these, these two selections, it's easy, Eric. I mean, from the film noir episode, I think listeners know that we're, we're big fans of film noir. And, you know, that's probably my favorite noir of all time out of the past. It certainly stars my favorite noir femme fatale of all time, Jane Greer, um, who, who I, you know, passionately have been in love with since I first saw the film. Um, and I, I thought that the, uh, the remake of it, Against All Odds, um, which is sort of a transformative remake, uh, actually I came to Out of the Past through Against All Odds. I was 14 or 15 when it came out and I saw it and loved it and then bought the VHS and used to play it all the time. I loved that movie. It was, it was so cool. I hadn't been to California yet, but it's kind of just how I imagined it to be. And, um... A few years later, when I got like my first Leonard Maltin video guide, I read that Against All Odds was a remake uh, uh, of 1947's Steamy Out of the Past. I remember Steamy was the adjective. So I remember, you know, renting Out of the Past and going, even, even at that age, which I don't know how old I was, uh, it was in my teens, late teens, I think, um, I was utterly blown away by out of the past and Mitchum just became you know even more of an iconic hero to me after watching it and so I thought also having taught a film noir class last year this time last year where we did you know look at this remake and we looked at the its, its uh, analog um, I thought this would be a great place to start you know Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. I I agree. Now you know, just to, as a as a very very quick aside, um, do you know of any remakes where the remake and the where the the original and the remake were of a different genre? I was just thinking about that when you said usually the same genre. I thought, well, damn, has there ever been a remake and a remake and an original where they were a different genres? Well, they can. They'll take sometimes sources and turn them into musicals. Like Little Shop of Horror, right, right. That's 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 kind of the 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 obvious one. But uh, right. do you know of any others? Uh, ooh, I'd have to do a little thinking about it, but I'm sure there are because you know sometimes the idea is to take a particular plot and storyline or character or protagonist or something and throw them into a di- an entirely different setting, a different milieu altogether, and see how it works. Right. Um, like doing a science fiction retelling of, you know, blah, 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 or... Um, right, 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 right. Uh, but, I, you know, yeah. but off the top of my head, Chris, I don't know. I'd have to... That's a great question. I have to look. I was just I was curious. Yeah, Little Shop of Horrors is... is uh, but, but there's still, I mean, Little Shop of Horrors, the original is a comedy, right. and the the remake musical is a is a comedy musical. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, but I, that, that's, just, that's just an aside. I think that these are, are great... Um, choices I, I had seen against all odds quite some time ago, um, and but I actually had not seen out of the past. Yeah, yeah, so I, I was that. I was the opposite. Um, if you go 
if you go back to episode number four, where Nick and I talked to David Hogan about film noir, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, Nick and I both give out of the past like very, very high praise. Um, it's one of my favorite film noir as well, but I had never seen Against All Odds. Uh, I wasn't sure if I had when you brought it up, Nick, uh, a while ago. And then after watching it last week or a couple of days ago, uh, I, I realized I had not seen it before. So it was all it was all fresh to me. And we did an interesting thing here at home. We uh, we watched Against All Odds. Uh, for, Rebecca had never seen either one of them. Uh-huh. So we watched Against All Odds first and Out of the Past second. And uh, she said she liked it that way um, mm-hmm. because she knew like what to look for in Out of the Past or whatever. But um it was uh, yeah, it was fun to watch them back to back like that, and yeah, I hadn't seen out of the past in a little while, you know, maybe maybe a, more than a year, maybe a couple of years. So that was cool. So it's a good yeah, I think it's a good way to to start off this uh, you know this discussion. And I, I agree with you, Nick, about remakes. They're they're interesting, especially when they're so separated in time. Because anytime I see a remake, my first. Um, instinct is to say well why like, <laughs> right like why bother right. you know especially if the first movie's good like out of the past is a great movie there's no need to remake it you know why, why bother but you know then i watch it and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and you know as we as we go through this series we'll probably find some that work and some that don't and somewhere it's like why did you do that you know i mean a, a good example might be uh the uh the new zemeckis film coming up man on a wire which uh Going back to what Chris said, that's a documentary that's remade as a you know as a feature a biopic, you know, or biopic or, or something you know. So that might be interesting. So, um, but yeah, it is interesting because you know as we know, films reflect the time in which they were made. So a remake that's forty years apart, or was it fifty, sixty, so yeah, eighty, uh, yeah, thirty-five years apart, they they have to be different just because they reflect a different societies in which they're made you know there has to be some kind of difference for them to be different different sensibilities different gender roles different uh culture different economy i mean it's just 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 different yeah just 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 different different. the problem for me and i think for the public writ large is when you get to like sacred certain films like eric just said you go why um and especially if they happen to be like really beloved um, like Psycho, for example, or um, Willy Wonka, you know, you're, you just sort of like, you're like, I don't know if that's such a good idea. And, and very often the original sort of, you know, I mean, I've been screening Carrie in intro to film since I started teaching intro to film over a decade ago. And uh, after the remake came out, a lot of students were talking to me about which one they preferred and they preferred the original, you know, they just said that it seemed to have more bite to it. Uh, and it was a leaner, uh, more um, brutal film, you know. Well, and that's kind of – you bring up an interesting thing with talking about Willy Wonka because you you look at like the original, which was a, a musical adaptation that was also a stage show. And then you look at Burton's version, which was Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. So I, I – which kind of was said to be more of a faithful adaptation of the book. Right, um, and I, I, I mean, I've never read the book, but so they're they're kind of a, I think it's something like that. It's almost like a, a quasi remake where where I don't think Burton was necessarily trying to remake the original film. Uh-huh. He was trying to That's go a- closer to the book. 
That's a great point, Chris. I can't, I cannot argue with that, but I can say that he's on thin ice then, though, regardless of his motivations of whether he wants to do a more accurate <laughs> because no, because of Gene Wilder, because of the Leslie Bercuse and Anthony Newley score, you know, like, or, right. and I can't remember, but the idea is that like, it's a, it's sort of like in the national treasury, you know? And right. when you start, start, and speaking of national treasury, <laughs> Um, out of the past. Out of the past, yeah. Library of Congress in 1991. So that was one of the early adopters there. But yeah, I know I, I agree with you, Chris. I mean, it, it, I, his motivations might have been more honorable to, for example, be more uh, literal towards Roald Dahl. But uh, it's like you're still, you know, it's like with Psycho. What the hell was that? You know, I, I, I'm still scratching my head over that. I never finished it. I got about halfway through and it was just like... Did anybody? Did you guys finish? Um, I, I refuse no. to watch it. Yeah, Eric, I, I never saw it in principle. Um, well, I, I watched I mean, about half of it just because of my admiration for the director, you know, and, yeah. and for Gus. But uh, yeah, but I I was like, I can't do this. We could, you know, uh, you know I was when you we talk, we're talking about remakes. I was thinking like a, a couple future episodes. I thought Psycho would be a good episode to have. Okay, okay. <laughs> maybe we'll find something worthwhile. I yeah. It. Well, since Chris and I haven't seen it, you've only seen half. It might be a really good idea, you know, just to watch it and see what we can come up with. Um, and then Psycho I think, would be a good one. Yes, the one went, brilliant went, thing about that was that Danny Danny Elfman, whose favorite composer in the whole world is Bernard Herrmann, they smartly chose him, who just simply did subtle variations in arrangement on Herrmann's iconic score. He wasn't going to touch a note of it, basically, you know? Uh, uh, so that was, I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> sort yeah. of. Yeah, so that that might be a good one, you know. For you know, another one that I was thinking of, and I don't want to really discuss it in depth right now. But when you talked about readapting a novel versus adapting or remaking a previous film, and I know Nick is not going to like this, but I think I know what you're talking about. I think True Grit would be a good True episode Grit. too to do. Oh yeah, I would watch it because um, I remember sitting next to I think it was Eric when when the trailer we watched that trailer together, didn't we? Yeah, we might have. And yeah. I, I gave you a nudge. We were in the movie theater, and I said. Something along the lines of, man, there is not a scene in that trailer that's not in the original film. So I don't know where these guys are talking about it being so, you know, so literal. But I would gladly watch that because um, it'd be a good opportunity for me to sort of like, you know, sharpen my pencil. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And in yes. terms of like a, a beloved <laughs> film with a remake that maybe wasn't so, uh, again, maybe wasn't so so good but was 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 criticized especially for a, the the remake which didn't i don't think got a really a, a lot of people saw it was the remake of his girl friday and that was they did a, a remake back in the late 80s with uh, yeah oh yeah it's called switching channels uh it's and it, it's it's got a decent cast it's got christopher reeve burt reynolds and um kathleen turner I remember this film. I didn't yeah, know it was, uh, and it's it's a it's a remake of His Girl Friday, and oh, and Henry Gibson is wonderful. I love film. Henry Gibson. Yeah, and it's it's the I think it's a fun film. A lot of people don't like it, and there is it's funny because Kathleen Turner and Burt Reynolds hated each other on set, so it's funny watching that film and with kind of with that that knowledge. But I think that would be a good one. The only really the only good. thing is, I have switching channels on VHS which I'm clutching onto because I don't know if it's ever been released on DVD. So we'd have to find Uh, maybe a digital copy or see if it's on Netflix. But I think that would be a fun one. 
yeah, I think we should all like you know as we as the series goes on, we all there should we all just like take turns, you know, like Eric, you 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 set it up, Chris, you set an episode up, and then I'll come back to me, you know, we just do yeah, keep that sounds, going around. That sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I think it sounds good. And then uh, listeners also, you know, if listeners want to uh, give us some comments on the Facebook page or on that'srapshow.com, we'll we'll definitely take suggestions because there's no shortage Absolutely. of uh, you know of of material here. So it's yeah, it's, it's yeah, a big great little... suggestion. And if you really want us to do it, you can become a patron, and then you know, <laughs> <laughs> then you can talk. be on the show. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's. Uh, how do we do this? Do you, you want to start I, with? I'll take the lead by okay. talking. I think about how, if it's alright with you guys, I mean, sort of by setting up the film, um, talking about the plot, and which one sort of, uh, out of the past. Okay. And um, and then sort of move forward from there, and then and then once we've all had our chances to sort of talk about it and talk with each other about it, we can move on to against all odds. What do you think? That sounds good. Okay. Great. Right. So, um, dear listeners, uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with Out of the Past and you would like to know more about film noir, and uh, I would say that young film students, it's, it's a genre or movement or era that you should particularly be attracted to um, because of its, uh, its economy of structure in terms of how they're shot and produced. You know, they were shot with very low budgets and they have such incredible dialogue. And we're very inventive, you know, because they had to think of ways that they could sort of cleverly pull off stuff. It's definitely a, a, a great place to start would be out of the past. I mean, you'd be starting at the very tippy top, but it would certainly hook you into it. It's such a great noir. Since um, speaking of that dialogue, I think it's got like some of the, some of the absolute greatest dialogue in, in the entire noir canon exists in, in out of the past. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a very simple uh, set up, but a very convoluted plot. Uh, and that's kind of one of the uh, pitfalls with a lot of film noir is sometimes the film noir can get a little ridiculous in its own sort of like um, contrivances. It'll, it'll, it'll introduce new characters and plot twists to the point where you're not even, you're like having a hard time following it. You know, I think I saw out of the past three times before I really understood what the hell was going on. Um, and that's having seen against all odds first. So <laughs> this was a long time ago, but the basic setup is, is, is brilliant. It starts off in this sort of like bucolic setting. Uh, it's definitely very rural. You see this, uh, this gas station and, uh, you see this sort of guy blow into town and, and he's looking for the guy who may own the gas station. He, we, we, we cut over to him and we find out that it's, this is Robert Mitchum and he's with this girl. They're fishing. It's very beautiful. It's up in, uh, the Northern California. And, um, and it's literally blowing in from out of the past. Uh, so this sort of like uh, dangerous element comes back to from from Jeff Bailey, Jeff Markham. He has a he has a, a different identity now uh, that blows in from his past and blows an ill wind. And so he starts telling his current sweetheart uh, via a flashback just what the hell is going on. So so via the classic sort of voiceover flashback, we go to Mexico. Uh, or excuse me, you don't go to Mexico. We 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 f- we find that uh, in his past life, Robert Mitchum had been uh, a, a private investigator, and he had sort of this sketchy partner. Um, and he's hired by this uh, cr- sort of criminal element, Kirk Douglas, in his second film, but sort of perfecting the type of sort of powerful 
kind of villain that, you know, when he would do the villain, this is kind of the role that was, you know, he became his template for the character. Uh, you find out he's, he wants to send uh, a private investigator to go find this girl that shot him. Excuse me. Wait a minute. No. Yeah. Shot him because <laughs> it's shot in one film and stabbed in the other. Shot him and stole uh, tens of thousands of dollars from him. And she's hiding out in Mexico. And this is the basic setup for the film. Uh, you guys want to chime in or should I just keep going? Yeah, I think that's that's a good setup. Okay. Right, yeah. Um, although I don't have anything to say. I just wanted to <laughs> – I mean, you can keep going if you like. Uh, well, I just want to go one, one step further and just say mm-hmm. that the – I think my favorite entrance uh, of a femme fatale and, – and, and by the way, we have this incredible setup – um, because we, you know, we hear about Kathy, we're told about Kathy. He says, you'll understand when you see her. That's in both films, I think. Um, you know, it, it it's just, it's incredible because he gets down to Mexico and they shot on location in Mexico, just like they did in Against All Odds. And, um, you know, he's, he keeps going to this La Mara Azul, this, uh, this restaurant every day, hoping, and then, then you get this great line. He says, then I saw her coming out of the sun, you know, and sort of she walks into this, into the bar and walks into Jeff's life. And it's just, she's an absolute sort of model for, for the future femme fatales. Uh, and then later on, when you see her again for the second time, cause she's sort of baited Jeff, you know? And so now she says that she sometimes goes to this place. So he goes there every night, hoping she'll go, you know, she'll turn up. And then he says the great sort of like, um, opposite of what he said at at the bar in the bar he says then i saw you know that classic robert mitchum laconic delivery that wonderful voice of his he goes you know then i saw her coming out of the sun and then later he goes and then she walked in out of the moonlight <laughs> it's like so beautifully parallel those two lines you know out of the sun and then in, out of the moonlight and of course that's that's kind of when she she really sort of like uh, gets the hook firmly into his mouth and he's just you know he's he's hooked He's all he's all into Kathy, and she was 22 years old at the time. Uh, she was the girlfriend of Howard Hughes, you know, who owned RKO, um, and uh, she had been a uh, successful uh, bit contract player at the beginning. But then she sort of graduated to these these leading roles, you know, and then she kind of retired after that. Jane Greer did, um, and and as a side note, she actually sued um, Howard Hughes to get out of a contract. At one point, and won, so she sued Howard Hughes, won, and then he still kept her on, and they were still friends. You know, hmm. so I mean, that tells you something right there. <laughs> That's wild. I'm, I'm interested in Chris's reaction because you said it was the first time you'd seen it, Chris. Yeah, that was the first time I'd I'd, I'd seen it, um, and I I really I really loved it. I admit, very early on in the film, I was watching it, and I just I absolutely broke out laughing when Robert Robert uh, Mitchum walks on scene and he's walking up to his service station, mm-hmm. and he's walking up to these gas pumps and he's smoking a cigarette, yeah. and then he takes the cigarette and he throws it towards the gas pump. <laughs> Don't laugh at that because actually that that you can't start a fire that way. That's like a, it's, it's a myth, believe it or not. The flame it, of the cigarette's not hot enough to ignite. Uh, it, 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 no, I I I understand, but it, it was. I just thought it was funny. I, I I thought it was funny. But um, that aside, I I I love the film. I love the 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 locations were were gorgeous. I just the 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 locations were gorgeous. The and the dialogue was just so witty and smart. And um, 
Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not as well schooled in film noir as as you are, um, Nick. But uh, you know, I, I've I've seen most of like Bogart, uh, Bogart and Bacall type stuff. But uh, I really, really, really enjoyed the film. I thought the setup was was great. It was believable. I actually liked it better than Against All Odds. Um, much better, actually. Not that I didn't like it. I just I found the setup and I found the characters. Um, and I know it's a different time, but I I just found it all much much more plausible than uh, Against All Odds. Um, and um, yeah, and, and I thought the the little triangles at the, at the very end, the triangle ending, the different characters shooting each other, and and uh, I, I love the ending too. The end, the ending was very very classic film noir, and I thought, and I I guess I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, you are, you are. You're, you're, you're definitely yeah. getting ahead of yourself. All right, all right, all right. All right. I'll, I'll bring it up later. But okay. That was my that was my general reaction. I I loved it, and I really really love the ending. Okay, cool. I want to talk about the ending later too. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if we need to be worried about to need to worry about spoilers on a 1947 film, but we can. No, no, no. <laughs> but I do I, want to if, talk if about you the ending seen it by cause, now because the ending is interesting. Um, yeah, that's interesting, Chris. I, the writing you mentioned the writing. The writing is so good in this film. It's the, spot on. The dialogue that's, is yeah. So Daniel tight. Mainwaring, who was uh, mm-hmm. uh, blacklisted actually at yeah. one point. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, it's tight. You know what I mean. The delivery is good. It's just it's it's uh, all the all the wise crack in. You know, especially with uh, Jeff with Jeff Bailey slash Markham. You know, it's it's ah, you know uh, that strike that strikes me about out of the past. A lot of these. Older these film noirs are like that, you know, a lot of wisecracking. But you know, I found myself chuckling throughout. You know, so um, I, I yeah. was I was laughing, and I love the 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 voiceover. Even the voiceover narration was spot on, right? Yeah. With the with the the wisecracks and the kind of sarcastic delivery. That was great. Yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah, it, it's um, it's exemplary noir. I mean, all of the all of the things that are came to sort of define noir particularly in the, the first era there, um, are on prominent display and out of the past. The, the archetypes of each character, the voiceover dialogue, the deadpan delivery, the witty repartee between the characters, the femme fatale, the psychopath, uh, uh, criminal uh, element, the good girl sort of who's you know, chased and, and uh, also um, uh, sort of like, uh, what's, what, what's what I'm looking for here? Sort of not very fleshed out character, you know, who's sort of like just the good girl uh, and the interloper. I mean, every sort of like archetype is, is you know, beautifully on display and not, and not of the past. Yeah. Uh, they're uh, they're playing roulette, and you know, in the beginning, when she says, he says, "That's not the way to win," and she says, "Is there a way to win?" He says, "There's a way to lose more slowly." Slow. Yeah, that, that's kind of the whole film in a way. Yep. You know, it's him trying to find a way to lose more slowly <laughs> to to a large extent. You know, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I just um, it was fun to rewatch it too because uh, you mentioned earlier, Nick, that it's it's very Byzantine in its narrative, and it's really there are so many locations and a lot of characters, and it's it's hard to figure out what the heck is going on, which is a problem with a lot of film noir. Yeah, and um, I feel like watching it the other day, I uh, for the umpteenth time I, I feel like i it was like an old friend you know i know the dialogue i know the feel i know the locations but 
I feel like I knew it for the first time again, if that makes any sense. I was, sure. you know, I made connections in it um, that I hadn't made before or things that I was just reminded of that I had forgotten, you know, because it's, um, it's, it's complicated, <laughs> right? It is complicated. Yeah. It's, um, you know, and, and, but as, as you, as you watch them back to back, you can find uh, doppelganged scenes, you know, like as yeah. I was watching them with the idea of doing a straight up comparison. And like Chris says, he, he preferred one to the other. And I mean, there's really actually no competition between the two films. One is a national treasure and a very important and is often cited as one of the greatest, if not the greatest noir. Uh, and the other one is is uh, not, you know, <laughs> and had a, 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 not. A, a lukewarm reception when it came out. But but there's actually a lot more, I think, to Against All Odds than was given credit during its release. And I think it's it's as a, a critical reevaluation of it reveals a lot. Actually, there's a lot going on there. Um, but what I was going to say was that there's this um, there are parallels, uh, you know, like there are almost scene for scene parallels. Um, you just have to hunt for them a little bit. Apart from the, sharing the same plot, you know, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, I mean, the other thing about that I wanted to talk about in, in relationship to Out of the Past was um, just what uh, Eric was saying a minute ago. The 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 complex the complexity of it uh, gets a little bit in the way, but upon repeated viewings, you start to remember the very the specifics, and they and and they and they kind of like they're all these little linchpins, and like if you pull one then that convoluted plot actually falls apart on, you know, so they actually, they build it well. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it all becomes about like, you know, she, there's, there's a, there's a, um, a murder and then Jane Greer's Kathy Moffat takes off on Robert Mitchum and he's sort of left there holding the pumpkin, as they say in Spanish. He's sort of like, well, you know, he's got this great big pumpkin in his hands. He's like, you know, what the hell? Uh, and so you, we, we come back to the present day. We find out what's going on. Uh, and he's called back to go see Wit, the Kirk Douglas character, and he finds that Kathy Moffat's there. And then there's questions of frame ups, and then there's this accountant who has the goods on Kirk Douglas's <laughs> character, Wit. Yeah. And so he's like, "You want to settle the score? We're going to send you up. I think is it to San? No, is it L.A.? Yeah, to L.A. And in L.A., you got to get you got to get these uh, accountant's papers from the safe because he's got the goods on Kirk Douglas, you know. But it's, then that becomes this sort of like little holy grail. If he can get that, then he can clear his name because he's being framed for the murder of the person uh, that Jane Greer. Cut. And you're like, what the hell is all this? Yeah. But it's like, it, believe it or not, if you actually pull any of that apart, it all falls apart. It all falls apart. And of course, that's what happens towards the end. Is that all, everybody's sort of like um, bargaining chip is gone because, mm. I mean, should I say it or no? Yeah, go ahead. Because go Kathy kills Kirk Douglas. Yeah. So, like, you know, I mean, when she kills him, that's it. Sort of like the House of Cards falls. and sh But she still got one one up on him, which is I'll frame you for the murder of the guy that I killed or, or, or several of the guys that I've killed. Yeah. Well, it's this very sophisticated you – know, when you look at the plot, it's like this very sophisticated Rube Goldberg, right? Yeah. It's like as the marble falls from this to this, oh, that's another killing and that – but that is hinging on something. You know, The marble going somewhere else is hinging on that. So it's, it's this like sophisticated Rube Goldberg and, you know, and out of the past – I think was based. Uh, I think like like most of these like noir films was based on a hard boiled novel. So to come up with this is just um, 
is is just really a work of just brilliant narrative storytelling. And I'm actually going to look up and find the the, the novel and read it because I really want to. High, which yeah. is the actual release title in Britain when it came out. What was and that? Course, it's called "Build My Gallows High," which is a line in the film yeah. that he says to Jane Greer towards the end. And she has her best moments there, by the way, I think. When she even says to him in that incredible profile shot, when she's got her in that sort of like nun's habit, you know, she looks almost like holy, uh, saintly. And she says, I never told you, I, I never said I was anything but what I am. You just pretended, you know, you just, you just built me up to be something. And she's actually, she's right. You know, yeah. I mean, she, it's this great scene. And, and so she's like, well, I'm going to call the shots now. Because uh, she wants to actually go back to Acapulco with him. And and frolic and be on the beach and live large and have fun and try and fall in love again, you know. Uh, but uh, as James Orsini says in the um, the audio commentary from the the new Blu-ray, it's like yeah, the production code would never you know allow for anything remotely like that after all of her murders. <laughs> yeah, and I think we should talk about the production code too because I think that's a huge part of the context when when we especially when we start talking about against all odds. Because yes. I think there are certain things that, you know, the, a lot of the narrative of Out of the Past is driven by or constrained by what's allowed by the, uh, by the production code. And I think that's why Against All Odds is able to play with things in a different way, whether or not as effective as another story, but they're able to do things that were not allowed in 1947. I think it's oh, a absolutely. huge part of the context of the film. And I think you're right. You're right, Nick. There's no way they could get away with it, which makes me wonder about, you know, he, uh, you know, at the end – she shoots him. She gets shot by the cops, mm-hmm. and everybody's dead. You know, yeah. and he, through the whole thing, you get a sense that you know, like in a lot of film noir, you get the sense that he's going to pull out. He's going to use his wits, and he's going to find a way around it. You know, he's going to outsmart her. But in this case, he does his best, but it just, it just doesn't work. He just lost more slowly. You know, but then you have that weird kind of addendum at the end where uh, the Anne, his his mm-hmm. kind of girlfriend comes in and asks the uh, deaf guy, you know, was he going to leave with her? The kid, I think, is his name. Yeah. Yeah. And, I love that scene. And he, you know, hesitates for a while, then nods his head yes. And um, that that whole ending is really interesting because, you know, the um, Jeff is he's pretty he's a good guy really you know yeah. he he made some mistakes he fell in love with uh, you know his boss's woman they were supposed to get that that sucks um, he you know he he helped cover up a murder okay that sucks but you know he's he's remade himself and he's he's generally a good guy he's not like he doesn't do anything with uh, Kathy once he sees her again he's true to Anne. You know, the whole time. And sure. even at the end, you don't get the sense that he was really going to go away with her. Not not by – on his own. No, he makes that phone call, remember? He sets yeah. the whole thing up, calls the cops, yeah. lets them know they're coming. It's beautiful. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so he's not going to. You know, so to the end, he's still true to his kind of values, which you don't always see in these films. And uh, but I wonder. I I always find that end end where the kid like kind of nods. What's he doing there? Is he trying to save her feelings? Yeah, clearly. I mean, I agree with you that the scene is is unnecessary and it feels tacked on. I mm-hmm. like it just because I know that's what Jeff would look. I mean, the the idea here, I think, is that we can't get past you know our 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 loves if there's unfinished business. You know, we just we we go nuts trying to figure out why did she or why did he suddenly dump me or leave or whatever or whatever the motivations are for it. It's a beautiful thing he does there by going, yeah, he knows that that's what Jeff would have wanted. 
clearly, is for her to move on. I mean, he signed his own death warrant. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, that, that was the whole point. I mean, I, it's a great shot, too, when he, right before he does that, right? Remember when they get up? He takes his shot glass, throws it into the fireplace, and he's like, yep, we were made for each other. And that's after he's made the phone call. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. oh, boy, you know, what's going to happen here? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think you're right about that's what he would have wanted. Because if, if the kid had said no, and then she would have to, like, agonize about you know why he's dead what was going to happen I, yeah. I guess you know i don't know um it was it was you know it was an appropriate response right and it, it, i think it kind of tied things up nicely because yeah. if if the if the kid had said no i think it would have left the audience and her feeling very ungratified well yeah or just you know tortured uh, yeah she can move on with her life right which is what he was trying to do uh, right. all along until uh, what's his face shows up. Um, Jim Joe, what the hell's his name? I forget. Webb, I can't remember. <laughs> who the guy who uh, visits him in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. That you know, Joe, Wits, Joe Stephanos. Stephanos. Yeah. Stephanos. <laughs> Stephanos. Yeah. yeah. Until Joe shows up, yeah. it's just it's you know it's such a great film. I, I I've got the Blu-ray of it. You know I've got the Blu-ray of both of these films naturally, and and it, the Blu-ray just came out within the last year, and it looks outstanding. It's just exquisite. Um, and uh, now this provides a natural pivot point for us, like like uh, Eric was talking about with the the code to talk about the setting for the the sort of California sunny remake of Out of the Past, which you know. But I think listeners need to understand that at that particular time, there was a lot of noir remakes in the 1980s that were happening. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Like, Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, well, things like, well, I don't know if Body Heat wasn't a remake, but things like DOA and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm -hmm. um, help me out here. What else? Um, you know what I kept thinking of with Against All Odds no, was uh, Chinatown, uh, which, is yeah. not, which is not a remake. But... Um, I kept thinking to myself because Chinatown was eighty, I believe seventy nine or eighty, right? Seventy five. Oh, is it even before that? Okay, yeah. You know, every time I think of Chinatown, I think it's later. But I always, I was watching. I kept thinking, like, how much does this film owe to Chinatown? Maybe it's because it's set in L.A. as well. But um, there is this renaissance of of neo noir or noir remakes, like you said, right? I uh, think that was you could say the beginning of neo noir. You know, this this cycle of films in the eighties started and then Well no, it was in the seventies actually. I mean seventies, I'm sorry. Yeah, Chinatown. Like Chinatown was nineteen seventy eight. They would be doing a lot of, you know, Chandler and, and Hammett and stuff like that in the seventies. Right. And then you had um films like this and then you had Get Shorty, which was a that was Elmore Leonard, and then you had Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs, so it was kind of the the seventies and eighties was kind of the beginning of the neo noir movement. So yeah, so we've got the context down that there's this uh, you know kind of neo noir movement in the seventies and eighties, uh, and then in nineteen eighty four, someone decides, hey, let's make a remake of Out of the Past, right? Right. Yeah, Taylor Hackford and his and the screenwriter uh, Eric Hughes had been working on, it, and it was it was in development over at Columbia, excuse me, at Paramount. And they wound up, um, it's a long story that I was listening to on the audio commentaries, but they wound up, um, Paramount put in turnaround and then Columbia picked it up and they had already had like people attached to it. They had, they already had producers attached. They had a uh, cinematographer attached. 
they had gotten locations in Mexico. Rachel Ward and Jeff Bridges had committed to it. Um, they had the legendary stunt car driver who said he'd be, he would coordinate that great sunset scene, um, which was a big part of the film. And, uh, you know, one gets the impression that a, a lot of the script elements came from Taylor Hackford and Eric Hughes sort of like what their, what their lives like were, were at, now they don't actually say this in the commentaries, but one gets the idea that, um, this, they wanted to use out of the past, the plot and the basic bones of it, but to tell a story about California and Los Angeles at that time. And try and sort of just make it as timeless as possible and talk about how everybody's sort of just abused and used by everybody else. But that the big players, the ones at the top who have absolutely no interest in football whatsoever, you know, that's just a thing that they own to, know, to sort of like meet people. Um, how, that, uh, how that lifestyle is sort of like um, lived and yet you never re- – you suddenly wake up one day and you realize that, you know, your, your, your world is, is – kind of shit and uh and that's what they do they they so so for the listeners i mean that's that's the idea they take the idea of a, of a football player uh which is very interesting which is a long long sort of like cry from private detective you know <laughs> they take the idea of a football player because they wanted it to be out about la and the raiders had just moved to la they were shooting at the new raiders facility it had just been built the year before and um uh, and the idea here is that they hook him up with the Jake Weiss is the the um, James Woods character is supposed to be the Kirk Douglas character. And he's sort of a nightclub owner. But what he does is uh, does a lot of illegal betting back then, which, according to Taylor Hackford, the film's director, you know, um, was huge back then. I mean, there's it's legal now. There's exchanges. But back then, I guess there was just like. This was a fast lifestyle, you know, and there was like tons of money to be made. And they go to like great pains in the film to to make this clear that there's a like tremendous amount of illegal betting going on. And then later on, you find out just how high the ladder goes in terms of like who's pulling whose strings and so on and so forth. And the idea is, I mean, you can probably extrapolate from there is the idea is that uh, there's a girl that he's been dating uh, or is involved with. And she winds up in this film, not shooting, but stabbing him and heads off to Mexico. Well, uh, Jeff Bridges' character is um, going to be put on waivers because they don't want him anymore. They can get someone younger to do his job. And besides, he's got a gimpy uh, shoulder. and Get, get rid of him. Uh, and uh, so he's like, sure, I'll go to Mexico. What else am I going to do? And that's the setup. And that's the setup. And that's the setup. <laughs> it's... Uh... It does have like a lot of the plot elements, and as you said, the skeleton of uh, out of the past. It's recognizable as a remake, but it's so different <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, on so many different levels, you know. And um, you know, I mean, some uh, of the characterizations are the same, but yeah, yeah, to an extent. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, the dialogues not as snappy the locales are the the locale the, the the locations oh man gorgeous gorgeous in uh in this film just as oh, they were in out of the past they're different but they're they're wonderful man um it was really great to look at for sure uh the plot is just as convoluted and and uh messy and twisted yep. great uh, point it it's still I mean, it holds together in the same way, I think, you know, I think. 
um, it's just a lot more explicit, I guess, in a lot of ways. And like you said, you have the you have the betting, you have the football, which took me most of the film to figure out because I he was on a f- team called the Outlaws, and it was supposed to be a pro team. But I'm like, is it a pro NFL team or is it like this? Yeah, it's like- supposed to be the Raiders. Right, but like, you never get like all the only shots you get of, of the, the practice field, and it looks like just yeah. a normal like a high school almost uh, practice field. You <laughs> I know, that too. that's funny because that was the Raiders' new facility. Marcus Allen was like warming up in the locker room when, while they were shooting. <laughs> oh, really? I thought that too. I was like, wow, this this kind of looks like where my high school played football. It's like, I mean, are these guys supposed to be professionals? Definitely like, not. Supposed no, to be that, NFL. <laughs> that was the idea. I mean, and that's kind of one of the best things about it is that you've got two man. Ma- Massive noir icons who sit at the top of all this. I mean, they actually get Jane Greer yeah. to, to play her own mother in this film. So mm-hmm. the you know the the Rachel Ward is cast in the Jane Greer role, and she plays her mother. Right, uh, and and so she's sort of like this heiress to this fortune. Uh, Rachel Ward's character that is, whose name's Jesse, and rather than um, Kathy, and uh, Jesse's with Jake just to sort of spite her mother, essentially. And and uh, Jane Greer's character is married to who owns the Outlaws is married to another you know classic uh, noir figure Richard Widmark, mm. <laughs> who, yeah. who James Woods constantly says in the audio commentary he must say it about he dips into that well at least a dozen times he says how how much of a thrill it was to work with Widmark what a wonderful actor he was and what what an iconic actor and all those great performances as a legendary evil. Uh, bad man and stuff and sadistic characters and he's like but he had apparently this fetish for like hotcakes it was all about pancakes and every time that like <laughs> he was he was supposed to be shooting he'd be like oh yeah cut print now where are those hotcakes and he's like where's the craft services and he's like, and like <laughs> so what when you're watching serious film, you hear james woods he'll constantly be like just in the middle of watching he'll be like oh and there's richard widmark he's thinking about those hotcakes <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's great. He still has that persona, though, even in this film. Like at that late age, you know, he he still got that menacing and kind of tough uh, guy. You know, kind of. Well, only yeah, it comes at the end. It's so cool. Yeah. Uh, Wood says his favorite scene in the whole film is the scene right towards the end where he walks up to Jesse. She's in uh, the car, and she's like, "You called Ben," and she's like, "He's not here to help. He's not here to hurt you, Jake. He's here to help." Terry. He's like, you don't know that that stepfather of yours. That's who I work for. And yeah. she's like, you, know, you can see her face changing. She's like, are you kidding me? It's his firm. I work for. He's the bad guy, you know. Yeah. And he talks about how that it's only like three lines. But he yeah. said, you know, when he was starting acting, he was told that no lines are ever three lines. No, no scenes ever. Uh, uh, you have to do the most with every scene you've got. And he said that he tried to humanize Jake at every opportunity he could. And, and it's funny because when you watch that scene, you're like, yeah, man, it's an incredible moment. With, with the, you can see how it's, it is. It's a, great, it's a great little moment there. It's only 30 seconds or so. It's a good twist, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I didn't see it coming. That's for sure. Well, you know, Eric, when you talk about like the, the sort of like Byzantine plot of this too, it, it, everything's changed here and it's all about real estate and developments. Yeah. And that's one thing that the film, you know, if you were in LA at that time, you know, like you could be, you, you would have uh, not, not jokingly, but literally billions of dollars now. That scene that they shoot at the end up in the, uh, that's in Westwood up in the hills. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Getty Museum is right now. Oh, okay. Oh, Yeah. Wow. Those empty canyons up there in Westwood, when that's the whole idea. They had to, 
you know, owning the football team is just a way to sort of grease the tracks, you know, uh, for, and, and Jake's sort of like a little bottom feeder who tries to make his way up. But the thing, the thing about all that is, is that you've got protecting like uh, environmentalists, right? Trying to like save LA's green zones and stuff like that. Notice how Club. they come into the fold by the end of the film because they get paid off mm-hmm. by, you know, this sort of like large conglomerate that, that Richard Widmark sits at the top of. So, you know, that's, that, that was the whole idea was that, that uh, Jake and Terry, who were such close friends. I mean, when you see that scene of them driving, the Ferrari and the Porsche going down Sunset. Now, I've driven down Sunset. I know, Eric, you have. Chris, you might have been real young. but I that was is, very young when I went down Sunset. Sunset. I mean, that particular stretch of Sunset is a blast. I mean, it's all about being in a fast car, if you can be in one. Um, or, or the Mulholland racers, the same thing. The idea of that sort of like these... And, and that's such a great scene. It... It tells you everything you need to know about their relationship, how they're sort of like without even having to say a word of dialogue, you know, they're 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 sort of just going back to their old habits. We'll take this. We'll take sunset, and then you get that great race, and you see you see how crazy they are, and like the the crazy shit that they would pull until um, Jeff Bridges' character comes up behind that uh, garbage truck, and then he's like, "I'm an idiot for doing this. I'm older. I'm <laughs> I'm about to be cut by my team. What am I doing?" You know. <laughs> Right. It's 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 a great scene, sets everything up, and it shows that the, the the film. There's so much betrayal that runs through this film too. Like everybody's betraying everybody else, which is great, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's, L.A. Maybe that's very why. LA. Maybe that's why I, I was thinking about Chinatown. I think you, you just sparked something right there when you said about the real estate and everything, because this film is about conspiracies and um, you know, kind of old money and new money and like front upon front upon front, right? Uh, you know, paying off environmentalists to get real estate done and all this stuff where out of the past is just about tax evasion. This guy, you know, he takes I think he he's just it's he's a mob boss, but he's gonna get busted by the IRS for tax evasion <laughs> and that's the end of it. There's no like great conspiracy going on, right? In in out of the past. Right, so, and maybe that's why I thought of Chinatown because Chinatown also has that like huge conspiracy going on with all these. You know, there's this kind of father figure, literally and figuratively, at the yes. <laughs> at the head of it, and all these layers and layers, and he controls everything in the town. You know, in, in Chinatown, um, where um, against all odds, it's taking kind of the same tack. It's it's got this bigger kind of societal, you know, kind of, there's, you know, there's a commentary going on about L.A. and about L.A. culture and about, you know, lots of different things, whereas Out of the Past is, you know, by comparison, very, I guess, small in a way. It's just about those characters. There's nothing it, it, else going on. It's such a great comment, Eric, because, I mean, if we, if you really start to think about Against All Odds, starting with, like, the volleyball scenes down there in Manhattan Beach, you know, mm-hmm. like, for, like that, that, and it, it, Jake would take money on that, and they talk about in the audio commentary that the public didn't realize it, but that was like one of the things that tons of money used to exchange hands on those those the, the volleyball circuit on Manhattan Beach, like tons, tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars would be bet on volleyball games, you know, unbelievable. So like from just that little thing right there, if you kind of like amass all the scenes together and against all odds, you get this really really provocative and um, sort of like defining L.A. style type of presentation that came to sort of, I mean, if you look at like Michael Mann's To Live and Die in L.A., which is, what, a year or two later maybe? Somewhere around there, 85? Yeah, maybe around that. that same time. 
it's 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 sort of building off, I think, of what Taylor Hackford did in in Against All Odds, and a lot of that LA style, I think, grew out of it. And and of course, Hackford's um, knack for music editing too, because he gets you know you've got Peter Gabriel in the film, and you've got uh, Stevie Nicks, and you know Phil Collins, and it's got that great you know wonderful sort of Dire Straits guitar work going on, and it's just. It's it's a really it's, it's uh, again I I'm glad that we're talking about it because I think there's more to the film than I think is is immediately apparent. Yeah, I agree, and it, it's it's very '80s skinny ties and you know the 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 nightclub and everything you know, but it is a commentary on all that as well. I I, I agree. There's more to it than meets the eye. Um, I think it holds sure. up well. Oh, I think it's timeless, actually. When you look at the uh, – I was just looking at, uh, again, the Blu-ray presentation. I was looking at the fashion that James Woods and Jeff Bridges are wearing and the cars. And you could pause it and go and, – and it felt timeless to me. Like uh, he's just in a white button-up and, and sort of khakis, you know. And, and Jake is got a skinny tie, but how many decades has the skinny tie come and gone and come and gone? You know, it's sort of, <laughs> true, true. It's, it's you know – so, I mean, the only thing that kind of dates it in my mind, and and that's not—I'm not saying that in a bad way, because you know how I feel about films and being dated. Um, I, I think is maybe some of the women's hairstyles in it that right. that sort of screams to like Swoozie Kurtz's character. Uh, you can tell by her hair that it's like the '80s. But other than that, it just—it feels timeless to me, in 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 like the, really the best way. All that stuff in Mexico, which is half the film, is timeless. I mean, shooting in Chichenitsa. Uh, and Cozumel. Cozumel and Acapulco, yeah. I mean, the Yucatan uh, um, province, you know, all that is sort of like, um, and 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 Taylor Hackford was saying how that they've, you know, no one's ever shot there like since then. They got, they were very, very lucky to get that stuff. Those Mayan runes, I mean, those are incredible. Yeah. And that's the, you know, I, I mean, that's just so, gorgeous and. Yeah, when he's I walking agree. through Cozumel, like the the city area, I mean, he they 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 nailed it um, because I've been to that part of Mexico, and man, even twenty years last time I was in that part of Mexico was um, almost literally twenty years after this film was made, and man, it looks the exact same fucking way. It's 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 identical. Well, Hackford, I mean, you know, the film that had put him on the map, he had made one hundred thirty million at uh, Paramount with. Um, an officer and a gentleman, but he had been a, a documentary filmmaker before that. And so when they were down there in Cozumel, they were, and they were, they were walking up to people just like they weren't extras. They were just actual citizens and saying, you know, the, the line in Spanish, you know, have you seen, have you seen this woman? You know? So, I mean, that, that gives you sort of a, a when you say he captured a, the, the Cozumel realistically, I think that comes from his documentary roots. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, there are some things though that are about peculiar about this film to the '80s, and, uh, and one of them is um, is this is the amount of sex I think. And yeah. you know, uh, Nick sent me some some links to some YouTube videos. I want to play uh, the uh, the love scene uh, from Out of the Past. It's going to be audio only, but you'll get a, you'll get a sense. I think. <laughs> They're uh, running in out of the rain into this little hut here. You get to hear it, right? Oh, yeah. It was a nice little joint with bamboo furniture and Mexican gym cracks. One little lamp burned. It was
was all right. And the rain hammering like that on the window made it good to be in there. Here. So they, uh, you know, they play around towing each other's hair off and stuff. And I love this transition in a minute here, which I'll describe. Not yours. No, Joe, please, it's all right. Oh, come on. Oh, no, that's so hard. Yes, you're my hair. So he's kissing her neck, which is, you know, a little risky. He throws a towel. The lamp falls over. The door flies open. The camera moves in towards the door. We get a shot outside um, of the rain. And then another cut, and now he's up and closing the door. <laughs> and that's your sex scene. You know? You're going with me? Where? So, you know, the whole thing is, you know, he throws a towel, the, the lamp falls down, open door, outside, close the door, you know, and then you, you understand what happens because of the production code. They can't show any more than that. And even kissing the back of her neck is probably a little, I would think, risque. It's, it's pushing it. You know? it's, it's rubbing her hair. I love that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's a great scene, you know, and you, you get everything you, um, you, you, you get everything you need there. And then um, uh, the other, oh, the other clip is about the, it's, it, it's not from a sex scene, but I'm going to play it anyway because it's short. Oh. What the hell made you think you could handle Jesse? I bet you used to bring her home flowers. No, you don't have to do that when you're living in the jungle. You just take her outside and show her what tree you're going to do it under tonight. <laughs> do it under. Hell, we get lots of trees. <laughs> the little little button at the end. Yeah, yeah, we hit lots of trees. Lots of trees. <laughs> but the, um, you sent me that. That's a great line. Show you what you're gonna do it under. But like yeah. the 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 sex in this movie is abundant. You know, when I first uh, talked about watching this movie, Rebecca said, "Oh, is that the movie where they're having sex on the beach?" The whole movie. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I think so." And uh, you know, they're. they're I don't know how long the scenes like when they start hanging out to, you know, when they when they're done. I don't know how long that is, but it's a lot of just them lying around on the beach, sitting around under trees, sitting inside, having sex, and there is some fairly explicit scenes mm-hmm. and fairly explicit scenes that go on for quite a long time, um, which I think in part is you know it's a good contrast out of the past in the sense that you know they can do that now you know you can have nudity and you can have long sex scenes um so why not you know do the things that out of the past couldn't do also i think it's a product of the 80s i think the sex scenes that you see in this movie today you wouldn't see like you rarely see anything like that in movies today and i don't i'm not saying it would get an nc-17 i don't think it would um but you know, I think people shy away from uh, from lengthy sex scenes like that. You know, that are more or less gratuitous, which which I think those more or less were uh, for a lot. So you know, and stylistically, it's got a very '80s feel to it. You know, I'm not saying that it's not timeless. I'm not contradicting. No, what you I think guys that's exactly saying. right. I think, I, and I think you're right. I think that's like a commercial imperative of the 1980s to yes. do that too, yes. and as well as like cultivate the star personas of people like Bridges and Ward. Uh, at that time. And so I think, yeah, I, I think that is something that is very much aid. In fact, by the end of the decade, I think we had all grown wearisome of the sort of like, uh, not wearisome, we had grown weary and it was wearisome <laughs> of, of these sort of like soft porn 
uh, like nine and a half weeks or last yeah, thing. So like either, either fuck or, or, you know, either we need to watch a porn or, you know, like cut this way, way down to just them yeah. kissing and then fade to black or something, you know, cause yeah. like that middle ground of, of, uh, two actors, basically just like five minutes, all the, like, like Chris said, the nine and a half weeks seemed to get old pretty fast. At least I thought it did. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. It, I, I think so too. Yeah. It does. And, 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 Eric, you 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 nailed it in in the today when when there is sex in a film, uh, if it's you know you you have the the extreme which is nymphomaniac, uh, which is the 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 rarity, and usually now you'll just you'll see fleeting glimpses of nudity and that's it. Yeah, right. You'll 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 see some it, some frontal just, nudity and the, then that then it's done. It's the poster of the film, for God's sakes. I yeah. mean, the idea was to sell the—I mean, to sell the sex. I'm, yeah. It was 80, it right. shot, shot at '83, and uh, Bridges had gone—you know—had been working out with a wide receiver from the Los Angeles, uh, from the Oakland Raiders, but then Los Angeles Raiders. And if you guys noticed, I mean, he's in the absolute best shape of his life. You know, he has a six-pack that he never had before or since then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, so they're definitely t- taking advantage of where they're at at that particular time and what the industry not only allows them to do, but encouraged them to do. Yeah, well, sure. and even look at the look at the song. I mean, you look at the, the song that that Phil Collins wrote explicitly for the film. It, I mean, it's a very, very sexual song. I mean, the the the, the way it's played, it's it's you know, solo piano with some drum backing, and it's it's very it's a very sexy song. And well, I, just, you know, there's really there's than just that actually. I mean, there's a very interesting story about that. <laughs> Sorry, I was playing it underneath you. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, you should play it for a second. Play it. Yeah. It's in the movie a lot. <laughs> in various incarnations, yet, yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And here comes the chorus here in a minute. Yeah, I think this is I just listening to it again. Uh I mean, this is a heavily making out, starting to starting to rip off your clothes and 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 getting down to business type song. See, I never thought of it that way. That's, I I totally I did. Mind you, I watched this film when I when it came out when I was 14. Oh. And, <laughs> I just and lost I my never, headphones. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. I I thought of it and if you watch the video, it's sort of like really ultra uh, dramatic and I, I don't really like more of like the love angle than the sex angle and that's just my take <laughs> um, uh, Chris maybe you're I was going to say Chris maybe you're associating it with the movie but you hadn't seen the movie so I don't know man no no I hadn't I, I, I heard actually I heard the song 
before the movie. Well, sure. Everyone, and, everyone knows and, the song. It was a number. Right. It went number one. Yeah. I mean, that was everybody a knows the song. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. did, and I mean, I, maybe maybe that's like I said, I'm coming into it differently. But yeah. um, whenever I hear that song, I always associate it with uh, with sex. Um, <laughs> def- oh, definitely. And, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Can I'll just I'll just leave it. Can I tell you the story? This is off topic completely. Um, I'll make it kind of quick. But um, when I was uh, a teenager, uh, getting my wisdom teeth taken out, my uh, my dentist had just discovered box sets. The idea of a box set, you know, he had a CD player in the in the office, mm-hmm. and he had the Phil Collins box set. You know, the whole nine yards Genesis, all that. You know, and it's like. All the visits I took to my dentist's office, that's all he would play was Phil Collins. So every time I went there, that's all I heard. So the whole time getting my wisdom teeth removed, it was all Phil Collins the entire time. And uh, the funny thing is I still go to the same dentist, uh, you know, 20-some years later. And uh, 30, well, 20-some years later. And I told him that story recently. I was like, you know, remember back when you had the Phil Collins box set and all this? I still, I can't listen to Phil Collins without thinking about dentistry (laughs) getting my teeth worked on you know and uh he didn't laugh he didn't think it was funny for some reason but but, i don't know maybe he didn't get what i was saying i don't know he's you know he's a little older now but um oh my gosh so i mean i don't have anything personally against phil collins but like there was a lot i mean it's only recently that i've begun to finally break that association of you know so you associate (laughs) phil collins uh, this song with dentistry yeah. and I associate it with fucking. That's yeah. really funny. And I'm I saying, associate that's... it with being like 14 and madly in love with Rachel Ward. Uh, there you go. <laughs> it's in there a lot. You know, some of the soundtrack in this movie though is really over, over the top, you know, not, not just that. I mean, this song's in there a lot, but you know, I get that, but some of the guitar work and the, some of it's really dissonant and disturbing and cool, and some of it is distracting and and overbearing, I think, in the movies. It just kind of takes the place of, I don't know, like actual tension almost. It, it, it just, like at times it enhanced the, the uh, intrigue and danger and, for me, and at times it totally distracted me and took me out of the whole thing. What did you guys think about that? I'm pretty sure Against All Odds is only played at the very end. No, I, I'm, not it, about, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about Phil Collins. I'm talking about like that that weird guitar work. I think there's oh, some... I know, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I find that I think Larry Carlton is behind all that. Mm-hmm. I found it to be um, really appropriate in in most places and a little overdone here and there. Yeah. You know, like that could have been dialed back a bit. Yeah. I think there's some of it in this trailer you sent me at the very beginning. I'm just going to play it real quick. Grand from me. Yeah, synth work. The synth work and one of the guitar stuff. Too. I want you to find her for me. A professional athlete past his prime. <laughs> okay, whatever. Um, I thought there was more now, that of it. Stuff right there becomes trailer music. That's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that synth work, work, but there's yeah, and there's some guitar work that sounds very similar. That's what I'm talking about. The Phil Collins song. It's it isn't the end in its entirety, but it's in the film a couple of times. Are you times sure? I've seen it. Oh yeah, 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 four thousand yeah, times. No, Eric, Eric's Absolutely. right. There, there are a couple scenes times. where. You just hear it lightly, where it's like it's a motif. You, yeah. you just hear the the very bare um, verse or chorus, just and it's briefly too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just maybe a few bars of it, just that's to hint possible. At it. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. yeah. I th- yeah. I think yeah. you're right. I think there might be like a few bars. Of it. 
yeah. full count song. Yes, yes, there is. Yeah, maybe two or three times. Uh, but I was, uh, yeah, I was, I mean, I was the talking melody, about the, not the song. There's a difference. Yeah, yeah, like a little motif, you know. Yeah, the underneath. melody. Yeah, yeah not yeah. the actual so- yeah. Phil, Phil Collins singing it. Okay, but yeah, just just uh, uh, but on, on different instruments. It, it's definitely recognizable. It's enough to to evoke the song for sure. Because right. I, I found myself giggling a little bit because the song is so. I mean, it's so well known, you know. Um, but no, I was talking about. Again, the, I, was know, talking of not, I was talking not. I was talking not about that. Though. <laughs> I was talking not about that. I was talking about the guitar and synth work. That weird. Dissonant, a little overdone here you know, and there, but yeah. I'm fine with it mostly. Mostly. Yeah. Same. It 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 seems a little overbearing here and there. I mean, like not overbearing in the sense that I can't. There's like parts of Lethal Weapon I can't even watch because they're like the saxophone and guitar. <laughs> there's this cacophony of like a dueling between the two of them. It's just it's like it's obscene. It's like masturbatory. It's in like Lethal Weapon. You said what's that in Lethal Weapon? In Lethal Weapon, uh, yeah. There's I like can't, you know, the, I can't bring the, that to mind. The movie, yes. The, the oh man, the, it's just overdone. That mm. wailing saxophone is just like it's. I think it's Marsalis and Clapton mostly. I mean, wonderful um, musicians, but I think like what's going on, it doesn't. It's too dissonant. And there's a little bit of that I think going on in Against yeah. All Odds. But, I mean, scenes, uh, in the score. For the, some, I, yeah, the I, I know what I'm you're talking about, about yeah. Nick, with with Lethal Weapon, because that that dissonance reflects exactly how I feel about the film. I hate Lethal Weapon. <laughs> oh really? Oh. <laughs> Can't stand it. Mm. I absolutely. Oh, I think it's stupid. I I, okay. and I, I hardly ever say that about a film. But I, I loved I hate it Lethal at Weapon. the time. I don't know now, but. I love yeah. it at the time. Oh, no, I never liked it. I never liked it. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies, actually. Is it really? Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend. That's okay. <laughs> it, you'll find that a lot of people love that, pull, like, Trading Places. You know, they'll pull that one out at Christmas a lot because it's got this strong Christmas motif. Right. Um, <laughs> but like uh, a yeah. quick, couple, quick story about uh, that song it, it, is that Hackford, I guess Genesis was playing at the Forum or something, and he went to go see... Phil Collins afterwards because he had met with his manager and said, I'd like Phil to, to write a song for the movie because, you know, he, he his first solo album had already come out and done really well. So he met with him and he showed him a rough cut of it. I guess in the backstage, in the dressing room after the show, he watched it and agreed to do it because he liked the movie so much, but he didn't know when he'd be able to record it because he was touring with Genesis. So he would like record little bits and pieces and little parts around the country, like the strings in Los Angeles, the vocal and piano in St. Louis or something like that. So he like, had to like hobble the song together, you know? And, and from, from a compositional standpoint, I think it's one of the finest songs he ever wrote. And of course it became number one and it's, it's like perfect for the film too. It is. It really is. It's like perfect for the film. It always, I love the video for it. That last shot, you know, of the three, the three of them. Um, I want the one thing I wanted to say here, you know, as we as we sort of like moving forward with against all odds, is talk a little bit about a, a couple of the parallel things that are going on between out of the past and against all odds. So uh, obviously, the idea of the sort of missing girlfriend and the guy being sent down to find her, and then and then them hooking up—that much we know. That's obvious. Uh, but then there's like, as I was watching, I kept thinking to myself, okay, so like. Um, there's like a honeymoon period between the two couples, you know, because they start off like against, you know, against one another. And out of the past, she's baiting him. She's not giving him much, you know. She's sort of just trying to get him to to see how far he'll he'll follow, you know. And he follows. And uh, then you start to get this sort of like 
great things. You know, uh, Mitchum talks about what kept her from leaving. I don't know. She could have left at any time, but then she'd come along like school was out. You know, that scene on the beach, that's a great scene. And um, and then, of course, the scene that Eric played a little while ago where they're, you know, in, in their hut after the rain, they make love. And so it's like they're 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 coming together. But then we get this honeymoon thing like up in San Francisco. Do you guys recall? Mm-hmm. They go yeah. up to yeah. San Francisco yeah. and there's like now they're really playing like husband and wife in a, in a way like they're like together every day, like living together. And there's like this honeymoon period until um, Fisher shows up, which is uh, uh uh, Jeff's partner and he wants in uh he wants he wants in he wants to be paid off um and then there's a gunfight right so it, what happens in out of the past is they have their sort of like honeymoon period down there in in Mexico and then Alex Karras's character shows up and there's a gunfight you know and it's like um and I this got me thinking just that those those like parallels and then I started looking at the rest of the film and I, and I started finding that there was like parallel scenes throughout both films, just not manifestly so. Like you wouldn't think about Fisher and Alex Karras being the same character, but they wind up doing the same thing, like showing up and then get, getting killed. You know what I mean? You guys with right. me on this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and and so if you just keep pushing forward, which I won't I won't bother doing because I, I I made the point, it, but I could keep going. Is that there's a, they're actually more similar in their plot and structure than 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 even meets the eye. Once you start really analyzing the scripts of both films, you're like, holy cow! There's more parallels here than I thought. Well, they both make very copious use of flashback. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I mean within that's... within within those devices, I'm talking about parallel structure in the the way the scenes function. Oh, sure. right, yeah. they're like yeah, identical right. scenes, you know, but with just different characters, but the same outcomes. Right, right. Remember oh, the safe, right? I mean, you got the whole safe. I mean, I, the reason I said I was going to stop was because it became obvious. But we can keep going, you know, like the whole safe issue and the stuff of, of and the betrayals and the fuck you, Terry, on the piece of paper and yeah. and all the burns that everybody's trying to do to each other. They're like identical. Clearly, they they when they looked it out of the past, they said, "Well, we're trying to transform it," and they did. But maybe even they gave it more lip service, I think, than they even realized. Oh yeah, it's got the, it's got a lot of the same DNA almost, right? It, yeah. yeah, yeah. There are a couple there are a couple things that um, I, I thought were interestingly different. Because um, yeah, I mean, the guy shows up, he gets killed, you know. But like in the um, and against all odds, it's very explicit that you know you see her shoot the first guy, and then mm-hmm. she you see her shoot um, the uh, James Woods character at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Whereas in uh, Out of the Past, you the gunshot is off screen, and then the guy's dead. You know, she it's, it's clear that she shot him, obviously, and then the Kirk Douglas character just shows up dead, basically. You know what I mean? Like, there's some weird, like, well, Karras, you know, you see the blood splurt out of his chest. She thinks that he's trying to hurt Terry, but he's actually like trying to see if he's okay in the Mayan runes. And then she shoots him. He's like, he, remember, he goes, he goes, give me that fucking gun or shut the, he goes, shut the fuck up. That's what he says. He goes, shut yeah. the fuck up and turns and, and like tries to take the gun or whatever. And she shoots him, you know, because she thinks that he's trying to hurt. If you look at the scene again, it's it's not clear from her viewpoint. She thinks he's trying to hurt Terry. He's trying to get him to come around, right? Because like, he's knocked him unconscious, right? And there's this big sort of like um, 
blood splurt that comes right out of his chest. Right, right, right. And and whereas in out of the past, it's off screen. Totally off screen. Yeah. And but by God, that's so funny when you mention that because uh, um, the the same like you said with the James Woods character. That's in and the the um, off screen shooting of Kirk Douglas. Yeah, it's a great analogy, Eric. I mean, it's it's perfect because. Uh, with the Kirk Douglas character with Wit, um, it's clearly shown to be an abusive relationship. I mean, yeah. he hits her, and there's like this all this dominance and control over her, and she acts very bit than she does about Mitchum. You know, uh-huh. she's sort of like controlled and 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 uh, very very soft and and uh, demure almost, and um, kind of you know controlled basically. But and in uh, Against all odds, it's just the opposite. Jake is like massively in love mm-hmm. with Rachel Ward's character, you yeah. know, to to a fault. <laughs> he yeah. just, he, it's, 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 uh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't think about that. Yeah, and he's, you know, he's he's really jealous of, um, of Terry in that. Whereas in Out of the Past, Wit doesn't seem to care a whit about what happened. He just wants to use it as leverage. Yeah, you know, but he is very abusive. It's true, you know. When he says, um, you know, he says, I'll promise you one thing. It won't be quick. I'll break you first. You know, you won't be able to answer a phone or open a door without thinking this is it. You know, it's so sadistic. So sadistic, you know. Um, So, yeah, so there's that. But when she kills him, that's off screen as well. In fact, it's um, uh, Jeff who shows up and finds wit dead and that's when she gives him the the ultimatum whereas in uh against all odds she picks up the gun and shoots him in that uh climatic scene on the on the wherever they are i don't know where they are um you know she she shoots terry so um in against all odds you see her shoot the guy both times whereas out of the past it's clear the one time it's clear both times i guess but it's off screen or out of the scene which is kind of interesting i think um you know partly it's just a style you know the 40s versus the 80s i suppose um but it's really close range and against all odds i mean you're right that it wasn't clear from her point of view with the first guy but um and he was trying to take the gun from her so I could see that, but in out of the past, she's standing across the room and she just shoots the guy. Right. Yeah. And she's like, you weren't going to kill him. He was going to tell on us or whatever. He's going to go tell, you know, wet you had, to, you weren't going to kill him. So I did, you were just going to beat him up and throw him out. I mean, she's calculating, you know, in that, in that situation. So it's a lot of similarities, some differences, you know, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, it's really shocking how similar the structure is. And then of course yeah. we have the whole, that whole third act, which is all about, uh, setups and, um, yeah. like, you know, and, and payback the idea that, you know, you need to go, well, I need you to go get this stuff and then I'm going to frame you for another murder once we <laughs> get rid of the person who's got the goods on us, you know? Right. Uh, and that happens in both films, you know, uh, Saul, the, you know, the, the, the Saul Rubinick character, the lawyer, and against all odds, and the accountant in out of the past, you know. So it's and, and the frame, you know. Mitchum knows right pretty much something when he meets Rhonda Fleming's character. He's like, man, something's not right here. I'm I'm going to be the patsy again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, I can't see the frame. And it was a frame, but it's all I can see. I can't see the picture. <laughs> yeah, and, and Bridges doesn't realize he's a football player. He's not used to thinking that way. But yeah. when he gets to that folder and it says "fuck you, Terry's," and then you find you see the dead lawyer, you know, 
yeah. you're like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> but it ends up bad for Jeff. He ends up dead, you know, where yeah. Terry doesn't, you know, it's, it's, there's a, I think there's something to be said for that as well. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, uh, my, I knew we were going to be getting to that, the, the major differences between the endings. And, and for me, I just see it a, a, yeah, truly as a function of the decades in which they were made. Mm. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, there was um, in, for, for uh, out of the past to sort of be a noir, essentially, it, it, the ending it had was the ending it had to have. Yeah. And uh, against all odds being sort of this California noir, this neo-noir of the early 80s, um, it, it seemed almost more bittersweet to just have them, you know, she's going to like toe the line with her family and he's going to go try and put together a life, you know, and then as you get Bill, Bill Collins singing and it's, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as a foot, as a football player for, uh, in Miami. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know about that. It's, the, the, I, yeah, for the time period, it was, I guess the film, Against All Odds couldn't have ended similar to uh, Out of the Past, but there was a part of me that wanted it to. Mm. Jeff Bridges, I don't think the studio would say, yeah, okay, he, you can kill him off. They'd you can probably, kill him off. Yeah, I don't think they would have gone for that. That's my guess. They don't they, probably, no, you're probably right. They probably wouldn't have, but I, I, I think it was kind of a, um, you know, oh, it was a, a gimme, right? Get the way, the way, the way the film ended. As opposed to them, him getting actually killed off. You know, and I think you're right. And I think that that our the trade off is that Taylor Hackford empties an entire reel just on Rachel Ward's face there to say, <laughs> yeah. basically, you know, he's tears <laughs> coming down. Yeah, basically that like it does suck. You know, like Richard Widmark's right there going like, "You're out of her life," you know, <laughs> and then he says, "I I guess that's up to her," or something, you know, and so. Um, you you won't you know you won't control us forever type of thing and then yeah. we get that uh, that long um, but yeah I mean it's it it seemed like for 1984 the Reagan era uh, it seemed like the proper sort of way to end it yeah. you know I mean the film is is made in you know bright sunlight for the first two thirds and then interestingly it's it's a a night world after that you guys notice like that whole third act it's all nothing but like nightclubs and and outdoor scenes and yeah. you know it's like it's nothing but like night. The last third, which is <laughs> I hadn't noticed that, but that's 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 awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I mean, it, because in in against all odds, you have this controlling patriarchal figure, um, which which you know, again, Reagan era. You know, I think that again, going back to Chinatown, which is not Reagan era, but that's a motif. And in out of the past, it's more just it's like more of a system almost of 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 deception and, and and all that i mean i could see a way in out of the past for him to set her up and then somehow get out of it and live happily ever after with Anne. but i don't know how much twisting and turning you'd have to do of that narrative i don't know if it would survive you know because well, i think that it wouldn't be a noir they well you know i look at the maltese falcon you know where or, i mean he sam spade doesn't die at the end of the maltese falcon he sets her up you know that's true river, but that's 19 you know? what 41 mm-hmm. and so by 47 i mean that that's sort of like you know falcon is sort of like they they credit that with sort of like inaugurating the modern yeah uh, modern noir era during World War II, yeah, and by forty-seven, it had been so like, uh, and it, you know, deeply 
um, mythologized basically, yeah. and, and that 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 since he sold his, since he hitched his wagon to Jane Greer, you knew he had to die. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I mean, you're right. Uh, it, I think it, I think you're right about that. I mean, the big sleep was 46, and that you know Philip Marlowe doesn't die at the end, but it is pretty crazy at the end but yeah i agree with you that at that point of time people were more expecting like these kind of dark endings where the hero dies and like i said for him like he yeah it would have taken a lot to convince the viewer that he was going to be able to live happily ever after and not be accused of these crimes and not have this stain on him and i like the ending just fine i'm not saying it had to end that way but i it you know the the weight of the ending is i mean it was it was pushing towards that the whole time and there at no point did i think that uh terry jeff bridges was gonna die at no point and against all odds did i right. think that yeah. it was gonna go and that's fine star. you know and that's yeah, no that's, i didn't think he was gonna die i kind of hoped he would you hoped he would yeah i understand oh. yeah yeah yeah, no, offense, no offense to Bridges yeah, and Terry, yeah. but I kind of it, yeah, no, it would have sealed the deal. I was hoping you're gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> there seemed to be enough death and and against all odds. Everybody yeah. was like, every time you turned around, somebody was dying. Kind of yeah. like Titus Andronicus, you know Shakespeare's play, where every everybody at the end, the end of the play, everybody on stage is dead. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think you know with against all odds, I um. I don't think I'll watch it again. Uh, you know, the act, like I've, with with out of the past, I find myself laughing and chuckling at a lot of the the, the one the the one liners. You know, the kind of so comebacks, good. the repartee. Um, I find myself laughing with them, with the writing, and with against all odds, I find myself laughing at it in some places. With some of the some of the comebacks are just kind of like, yeah, well. So do you, man? You know, that's what it feels like. You know, it's obviously not literal, but I felt like there wasn't that witty repartee there wasn't like the 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 i don't know if it was the writing or the acting it might have been the acting in some in some cases um and i think they substitute i mean the the sex scenes and the and the imagery is great but i think it, they substitute that for you know for moving the plot or, or developing the characters anymore um i didn't hate it by any stretch but if i was going to watch one of them again i would watch out of the past again i think I think I think. Yeah, hey. fair enough. I'm I for agree. me it's it's uh you know, I'm not that objective with it because it's uh it's a favorite from 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 puberty really, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I was what that. 14 when it came out and you know, your, your hormones are raging and <laughs> uh I just really I I loved that movie, identified with it. It for me it, it it's a it's a really interesting remake, a transformative remake that that sort of like stars Los Angeles as its protagonist, yeah, really. I agree with that. And and, uh, and as such, it like really works, you know. And 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 with like the idea that everything that's powering this film is all about real estate and the Los Angeles of the future. Which, by the way, they were like right on the money with predicting, you know. Yeah. Um, and and then like the love, the lovely cinematography and the location shooting and and uh, and the fact that it is a remake of Out of the Past. Kind of just always made me feel like really uh, close to the film, and and as a remake, I think uh, from those '80s noir remakes, I think it's one of the better ones. That was, you know, got got lukewarm reviews. You know, I, I read Re- Roger Ebert's review of it, and it, he gave it three out of his four out of four, and had a lot of positive things to say, and Variety liked it, but you know, the average critic was sort of like, meh, you know, it's okay. Uh, but I think it's. Um, 
you know, I think it's 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 a it's a really good film, and if, if people haven't seen it, they should because its pedigree is is really remarkable. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I I can get on board with that assessment. <laughs> cool. Um, all right, have we done this? I I think we 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 have. I think we've talked it through. I think we have. I think that this is a, a feature we will definitely bring back, the, the remake. I think it's a great idea. Oh, without doubt. Yeah, yeah this is a lot of fun. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, well, for show notes to uh, you know, with links to things we talked about and stuff, you can go to that'srapshow.com. That's where uh, our little home base is. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. All that stuff is that's as at that's a wrap show dot com. And uh, yeah, so for that's a wrap, I'm Eric Marshall, and I'm Nick Schlegel, and I'm Chris Cullen. And we'll see you next time. Cut. That's a wrap. Mm-hmm.